This is Rob Kent, and this is another episode of Middle Grade Ninja TV. Uh, I am the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available in paper book and audio book narrated by the wonderful David Radke. Uh, and the electronic book is available to download free whenever you're viewing this in anticipation of the sequel, Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, coming soon. Uh, under the super secret name, uh, pen name, Robert Kent, I have written some horror novels. Uh, which you are also free to check out. The first chapter of my horror anthology, The Book of David, is available to download as an electronic book as well. And I also run the website middlegradeninja.com, where I interview literary agents, publicity people, anything related to publishing, as well as some of my favorite authors, uh, including our guest today, one of my most favorite authors, Barbara Shoup, who is also, in addition to being a young adult author, uh, the executive director of the Indiana Writers Center. Uh, Barb, how you doing? I am well. Thank you so much for uh, joining us and being here today. Uh, so why don't we get started with, why don't you tell esteemed viewer a little bit about uh, your writing and your writing career? Sure. Um, I write both for uh, young adults and um, for adults. So I have a variety of kinds of books and I also have a couple of books about the creative process. Um, which I'm very interested in. As far as my writing career goes, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was, well, I mean, before, as soon as I knew what books were and knew that they were written by people, then I wanted to do that. Um, so my story is that I wrote my first novel when I was about 11. It was called Slave Girl. This was in the 50s during the period of time of integration. And so I was watching all these things on television that were very distressing to me. And so I don't know how my little writer brain worked, but the book was about um, a little a little black girl who was escaping on Underground Railroad from the South to the North. So I wrote that book secretly in my bedroom and nobody knew I was doing it. When I finished it, I copied it and I sent it away to New York because I found the name in a, you know, a publisher's name in a library book. And then <laughs> later, found out that the Underground Railroad was not a subway, as I had imagined. So that was the end of my writing career at age 11, because I just assumed that I was too stupid to be a writer. And I knew even then that you didn't want people in New York laughing at you. Not that they did. They sent me a very nice, you know, <laughs> rejection letter, my first. But I didn't, I really didn't write again for 20 years. And I um, finally started writing again when I began to teach. I was in my, I guess in my late 20s. And um, I was lucky. I, I started taking classes at the, at the Writer's Center. And I don't, you know, don't know what I would have done had that not been here because I had no training in writer, writing at all. Um, I had a degree in elementary ed and had done a little bit of work there. So, you know, it was, it was great for me to have have classes with with real writers. I didn't know any real writers before that. And so I started taking classes here at the Writer Center and I was very lucky. I published a, a first novel within a couple of years after I started writing, which I didn't realize until later was was very unusual. So I, I published that book um, and I published it. It was so long ago. It was Harper and Row. Now it's Harper and Harper Collins. But um, but then I went 12 years in between. Uh, the, the first one and the second one. And that was really hard. Um, I was teaching all that time and teaching was really good for me because it, well, I told my high school kids what I had to tell myself. It's all about the process. You got to keep at it. You can't 
control certain things, but you can control whether you write or not. And so I did keep writing. And then the next book that I wrote um, turned out to be a YA. I didn't know that when I was writing it. It was called Wish You Were Here. It was about, um, actually, it it really grew from my experiences as a teacher at Bridal High School here in Indianapolis. And what I was noticing, and this was would have been like the mid uh, 1980s, um, was that so many of my kids were were from families that had split up. And this was kind of new. There, there weren't that many people. I mean, I honestly can't remember anybody from my childhood whose parents were divorced. And so I felt like I was seeing something kind of new in the universe. And it was sort of heartbreaking to me. So if I, I don't, I really write for myself and I don't have an audience particularly in mind when I'm writing. But if I would have been asked, I would have said, well, I think parents need to know what it's like for the kids, you know, because it was my generation, the baby boomers. And because we hadn't had that experience ourselves, we really didn't know how hard it was. And um, so anyway, I sent it to my agent and she said, people don't like to read about teenagers. And I thought, really? I do. <laughs> I find that time of life very interesting. But in any case, uh, long story short, it ended up um, being published by Hyperion in 1994. So that was my first. And I've, you know, published fairly regularly ever since then. As I said, some some for adults and some for young people. And your newest, of course, is the brilliant novel Looking for Jack, Jack Kerouac. Looking for Jack Kerouac. Yeah, Excellent. don't you love that cover? <laughs> that is one of my new favorite books. Oh, thanks. By an Indiana author about Indiana folks. No one should miss it. Thanks. So going back to Wish You Were Here real quick, when, uh, when did you know that was a young adult novel or did you know until people told you after I it was didn't. published? I didn't. And in fact, um, to be honest, I had some mixed feelings about it because at that time, that was 1994, it was kind of just at the beginning of what I think of as real YA books, you know, YA books that were, I mean, I hadn't even heard that term. I, I mean, there have always been books for, for young people, for teenagers, but you know, they were kind of more um, romance books. And when I was growing up, I always wanted to go in the adult section because that's where the real stuff was. And, um, you know, when I began to realize that, that people really were writing books, good books for young people, I was, I was good with it. But at first I was like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't know about that. And it is true, you know, sometimes that people, um, you know, it's kind of like, well, gee, that's really good. Are you going to write an adult book sometime soon? I mean, I feel like you have to do this before you do the other, which is so totally not true. You know, it's a it's a kind of book, and it's a wonderful kind of book, and it's every bit as difficult to write as as any other kind of book. So I've been kind of interested in in that phenomenon too. Now, have you found that that reaction from people has changed over time now that we're in the advent of the young adult novel? Not among certain kinds of writers. I mean, I have, you know what I mean? The people who are, are maybe kind of more consider themselves to be literary writers. Oh, sure, the jerks. <laughs> yeah, you know, they, they kind of give you a little bit of an eye. But one thing I have noticed is that, um, you know, people that are coming out of the MFA programs who never would have considered that in the past are now seeing it as a good market. You know, so um, you're seeing, you know, maybe a little bit more more acceptance of it than there used to be. But one of the things I also think is interesting about that is that you really have to be a certain kind of person to write young adult novels. It's not just 
because it's a good idea and it's marketable. Years ago, I heard Maurice Sendak, he was here for a library talk, the, the, the big library talk that they have every year. And someone asked him um, for advice, you know, what advice do you have to give to a person who wants to write for children? And he said, I don't write for children. I write as a child. And that just totally blew my mind because the more I thought about it, the more I think that that's really true, that the people who write for young adults who are really good, they can get right back in there in that period of time. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's always there for better or worse, often worse, you know, that, that teenage part of you is very accessible. And if it's not accessible, then the YA books you, you write are not, not going to have the kind of heart that they need to have, I think. Gotcha. So what uh, what authors would you say, other than Mr. Sandak, have been uh, most influential on you and your work? It's, you know, that's a, always a funny question for me because I read constantly and I, I love to read. So, you know, I'm sort of like, well, whatever book I last read that I thought was really wonderful, that's, you know, kind of like my favorite book and my most influential book. But I would say that um, the writer that I probably most admire is Tim O'Brien. I just think he's an amazing writer. He's not a YA writer, but his work is very accessible to young people. He, you know, writes, he, he writes about Vietnam or wrote about Vietnam and particularly his book that I love the best that that's called the thing, they, things they carried. Um, and I used to have my students read that all the time because it's just, you know, he does that kind of, his voice is amazing. He has just a, a such a strong and compelling voice. And, his work always makes me laugh and it always makes me cry. And sometimes at the same time, you know, and, and I, I love that about stories. I just, you know, I really want to feel every range of emotion and he does that so well. Um, I actually took a workshop with one, with him one time years ago and it was really funny because he, if you use like too many adverbs or if you use like purple prose or anything like, like that, he would, he would call you out and he'd say, he'd say, you're goosing the language, which I thought was just hilarious. You know, he'd go like that, you're goosing <laughs> the language. And then you'd say, okay, I'll stop doing that right now. So you'll stop saying that, but he's a great teacher too. Have you heard the uh, oh, is it the the newest audiobook version of the things they carried, narrated by Brian Cranston? No. Oh, it's worth checking out. To, I think it I'll might be one of the finest audiobooks I've ever heard. The, yeah, what the voice is. I know Tim O'Brien's voice, so I'm not sure I would like another voice because when I read that book, I hear his his actual voice. But I bet Brian Cranston's good. Oh, he is, but not if you, I guess not if you've heard the actual Tim O'Brien, then it won't be as impressive. Yeah, he has a really <laughs> different kind of voice than, than Tim O'Brien does, Cranston does, but I'll still listen to it. And then are there uh, some young adult authors that have influenced you since you, you, you learned what a young adult novel was and, and that you've uh, been reading? Yeah, and, and of course my mind is totally blank right now. Um, e. Lockhart, is that, is that her name, E. Lockhart? Or is there a middle name in there or something? But she wrote, I just, I love her work. I think she's just amazing. She wrote the, um, oh, I'm, I'm having a senior moment and I can't remember, but but she's she's a fabulous writer. And I would say she's probably my favorite. Um, I probably actually read more adult books than I do young adult books. But I, I think, man, when you get a hold of a good one, it's, you know, young adult books are are by nature about, finding out who you are. I mean, you can't write a good 
young adult book. If you're not looking at that question, you may be looking at some other things too, but you're always looking at that question. And she really, um, she's so honest, you know, she, she really, uh, she's funny and she's smart and her characters have some pretty serious issues. And, and she, she's very honest about that. And I think that's really important in YA books. Well, I think it's important in all books, but I, I think that from teaching high school as I did for more than you know 25 years, kids can handle the truth and they want the truth and they know when you're lying to them and they know when you're avoiding the truth. And so I really admire the writers who come right up against it um, and, and say the way it is. And there's another book that I love that's called um, Someday This Pain Will Be Useful to You by an author named Peter Cameron, who's not really a YA author, but he wrote that one YA book and it's a terrific book too. Very funny, very honest. So you, I assume, try to be as, as honest as you can be in your novels. I do. Is there a line that you've drawn on the sand for which I, I will not be this honest? There's something I'm going to keep just for me? Or do you put no, it all down the page? I don't. I mean, I feel like you owe that to the reader that you, you don't hold back, whether it's something that you know yourself from your own experience um, that is difficult to, to write or talk about, or whether you know, you're holding back something that you that you know about the character. I, I think you should just say it the way it is. And I think it's true in life too. Gets you in trouble sometimes, but I always think it's a good plan. And you, uh, you're addicted to reading. Uh, I know you uh, have an anecdote that you were reading as you were about to deliver your first child. You took the novel with you and you were annoyed that you had to stop reading. I did. It was, and I remember the book. It was one of those great big fat James Michener books. It was the one where where they were, they were traveling around in Europe in the '60s in the pop up camper. And I was probably about halfway through when I started having labor pains, so I took the book with me. And I was reading all during the labor pains in between. And then after the baby was born, I was so bad. It was like every time they would bring the baby, I would think, oh, oh, "I've been having her for 18 years. I've got to get this book finished." That's how bad I am. Is that awful? It's just awful. But that is, it. I mean, I, books are like food to me and I'm a fast reader, which is not so great because I, you know, like food, it goes right through you. Um, I don't always remember a lot, but I, you know, I, I have a basic, you know, feel for, for the book and a, a sense of the place. I mean, to me, it's always like going to a place when you, when you get into a book, it's like you go there. It's, it's not as simple as just holding a book. You are there. And if it's good, I can't, I'm not good at leaving. I've got, I've got the new, um, you know, JK Rowling writes these fabulous mysteries now under a different name. And I love those. And I, my husband bought me the most recent one and it's like about this thick, it's really thick. And I've had it for three weeks, but I don't dare read it because I have to write, I have to write grants for the writer's center during this period of time of the year. And I know if I start that book, I won't put it down. You can't read for three hours and then, okay, one hour I'm going to write a grant and then I'm back with, no, is it Robert no, no. Gilbert? Once I get into it, I'm done. I'm cooked. I, 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 <laughs> you know, I, I, I just can't. Week, week, week. <laughs> so what's the uh, longest, if, if, if you know this off the top of your head, what's the longest reading session that you've ever had? Oh, I, you know, I read in the car, not while driving, but um, I'm a great passenger. So I would say that I've probably read you know, from eight hours or something, if we're going on a road trip, it's not unusual for me to just read the whole time. And I don't, you know, I, I just, I just love it. 
Well, I think that would make you the ideal passenger if I were driving, because then I could listen to an audio book and we could both no, be in separate worlds and we'd have a wonderful You can't listen to an audio book. You'd have to have earphones if I'm reading. And oh, well, that's true. Yeah. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, put on some earphones and play some light music that would block out the sound of my audiobook. That would work. Yeah. I guess it would be really obnoxious if I wanted to listen to the same audiobook you were reading oh, and then you had just read the sentence that I'm, I'm hearing. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's not going to be a successful road trip. Let's not do that. No, no, no. That, that's the stuff of which marriages come apart. <laughs> <laughs> so that leads me to my next question. What does your uh, typical reading and writing day look like? Well, um, I get up early. I usually get up around five. I take my dog out for his bodily functions. And then that's my writing time. I fix a cup of coffee and I usually write for about three hours, work for about three hours. Um, then I, you know, kind of move into my day. Sometimes I take yoga in the morning. Sometimes I go to the office in the morning. Sometimes I take yoga in the afternoon. I have a pretty flexible schedule. And I, you know, I, I see a lot of people because I'm always trying to make connections for the Writers' Center. And I, you know, I have my little writers group that I meet with every other week. So I, I kind of try to keep like the late afternoons free for some of that stuff like that. Um, and then, you know, my evenings, I don't generally write in the evenings. Um, I read in the evenings and I always read before I go to bed. So it just depends on how tired I am, <laughs> how long I write. And then I just fall over and I, and I go to sleep. But I do try to write every day or at least work on writing. If I'm not writing, I'm revising or doing something with writing. And then you sleep the sleep of the righteous because uh, you've do. already done your writing there first thing in the morning, no matter what else happens right. in your day, it's done. <laughs> That's so true. It's outstanding. So a uh, question that ties into that, how do you stay focused on your writing goals when things aren't going so well, when you reach a point in the manuscript that's maybe a little bit more challenging than you would like? How do you keep yourself going? Well, I have a writing group that I just, st we just started this group a couple of years ago. It hasn't been going very long and I've, I've never had a writing group before, but it's, this has just been amazing for all four of us. It's just four women. Um, we're all around the same age. We're all, you know, writing pretty much at the same level and we meet every other week um, and take whatever we're working on. So the most recent book that I finished and I'm about ready to start trying to find a home for, um, came to me very strangely in little bits and pieces. Usually I write chronologically, um, but in this case, I just, I didn't and I couldn't. And so I didn't know what it was. And I would just take it to the group um, and they'd say, we don't know what it is either, but we like it, so keep going. And had I been doing it on my own, I think I might've been more discouraged and might've been more likely to put it aside for a while. So, you know, that's a big help to me to have, to have that group. Um, I also do a lot of weird, um, what I think of being left brain exercises if I get stuck. I mean, you can't think about writing by thinking, you know, you can't say, well, I'm going to now think about writing because it just makes you crazy and it all starts looping around and you never come to any solution at all. So um, it really takes your whole head to write. And part of why you need that, you know, more structured part of your brain is to help you see what you've got. And so if I get really stuck, I'll go back and I do this weird thing um, where I'll just start on, I'll start at the beginning and I'll write um, uh, chapter one, first sentence, and I type it on a spreadsheet. And then I will try to write 
a sentence or not really a sentence, but just a shorthand really for what happens on every page. Then I type the last line and then I skip a line and then I just keep going until I get to wherever I am in the manuscript. It is absolutely anal retentive. You cannot say that you can't do it. I mean, because you can do it. You just have to tie yourself to the chair. It makes you crazy, but you can do it. And, <laughs> and the thing that is so great about it for me is that once I start doing that, I start noticing things and my other part of my brain starts going nuts. And so I might notice, I might, might notice, well, what happened to this character? I haven't just haven't written his name for a while, you know? So I'll go to a notebook and I'll jot that down. Where's Bob? And, um, and, and I might say, you know, I have an awful lot of description and not so many scenes right here. So I might jot down, look at the balance between narrative and scene. And so by the time I get through to wherever I stopped, and I'll do this at the end of a draft too, you know, if I get finished with the draft, I have usually observed something that shakes it loose. And, and then I will, you know, then I'll, I'll move, move on. Um, and so you know, you're revising while you're drafting a, a, a new story. Yeah, I do. I mean, I do it all different ways. I'm not the kind of writer who can just write and get it all down and go back and look at it. It takes me, you know, I'm always telling people they should do that. And, and it's great if you can. And I think for beginning writers, it's, it's a good idea just to practice doing that because you have to get rid of the idea that that you're going to get it right the first time and and just let it happen and get into the habit of writing but for me as you know as I wrote more and more I found that it was better for me I'm a slow writer you know it takes me a long time if I work all day and I mean like 8 hours I would be lucky to get 5 pages um, but then those 5 pages are are usually pretty done um but not always. And so it's a, you know, to me, it's sort of like, you know, like leapfrog in a way you move forward, you go back, you move a little bit forward, you move back, you go a little bit forward and eventually you get to the end. And, um, and then you, you know, you see what, what you've got. Um, I always tell people that writing is sort of like translation in, in that um, if you think about what it's like to translate a poem, say from French to English, you have to be fluent in both of those languages. You have to be fluent in the cultures, but there are some things, you know, you can't change. It's not going to help because you, the music of the languages is really different. They sound so different. Syntax is different. If it's a rhyming poem, it's, the words are not going to rhyme in both languages. Cultural things aren't translatable. And so, you know, your job is to go back and forth and back and forth until you get it as close as it can be. So it's all about being stubborn and, and being fluent in both sides. And writing is exactly the same thing. You know, words are a second language to your heart. You've got the story in your head, you've got it in your heart, you've got it in your mind's eye, but none of that is words. And so when you go to the thesaurus and you're looking for that word and you think, where is it? It's not a lot of times, there is no word. And so you have to learn how to use the language, you know, to narrow, that gap between the story in your head and the one that you're able to get on the page. So you're going back and forth and back and forth um, until you get it as close as it can be. And you can't always see that yourself. You know, some, you have to have somebody help you see what's on the page because when you read your words, you, you can't help but bring the stuff that you already know. And doing those sort of anal retentive left brain exercises are very helpful for helping you actually see what's there. 
um, as opposed to wishing it was there or assuming it was there, if that makes any sense at all. So well, yeah, I actually Nobody uh, ever enjoys my novel as much as I do, because I know exactly what I mean. <laughs> exactly. But we're for the partners and for editors, and we would right. already be pretty. Well, in, in um, looking for Jack Kerouac, I had this funny experience where I, I sent a draft to my agent, who was, was a good reader, and um, she there's a character named Duke, and I love Duke. He's a like, to me, he's hilarious. But um, but anyway, she sent me an email and she said, did you mean for Duke to be a complete and total jerk? And I was like, well, <laughs> no, you know, I mean, he's he's a bad boy, you know, but but he's got a good heart. And she said, that's not there yet. And so I said, oh, OK. And I had to go back then and go through the manuscript and find places where I could show that, you know, I could have him do something that would make readers see that he was a more complex person um, than I had originally written him. So, I mean, I think that stuff is fun. I love revision. I, it's my favorite part. But how lot. many drafts are you, because obviously you're revising as you're drafting, so once I mean, you're It's hard done. to say, um, and for some books more than others, um, this book, Stranded in Harmony, uh, yeah, I guess you can see it. That book, which took me about 15 years to write on and off, went through, I actually have a, a photo, I should have brought it with me. Um, I'll send it to you. You can use it sometime if you want. But anyway, it's a photograph of myself with all of the failed drafts and they come up to my shoulder. <laughs> so I love to school, you know, and, and then um, kids, will, there's always some smart aleck, you know, well, why didn't you just stop? And, and I just say, well, that's what you don't do when you're a writer. You know, that's what it's really all about. You don't stop. You just keep going until you get it. And to me, that may be, in the end, the, the most important thing. You could be, you know, you could have all the talent in the world, but if you if you don't have the discipline um, and if you can't accept criticism, you're not going to get there. You know, it's not going not gonna to work for you. So, so non-writers are the ones that, that didn't keep going. Well, I think I think that's I think that's absolutely true. And I, you know, I, as I said, I've taught writing for years and. I had a lot of very talented people over the years of all of all ages and some of them I for whatever reason they they don't allow themselves to do it I think that happens to adults a lot and particularly women I think because they you know women tend to be very caught up with family and obligations and they won't allow themselves you know the time that they need to do this thing that is important to them and then time goes by and they feel like it's too late. It isn't too late, you know. Um, it's too late to be the younger writer you might have been, but it's not ever too late to write now. But yeah, I think it has a lot to do with discipline and um, the ability to be objective about your own work and to, to not only endure criticism, but to welcome it. It's a great gift because when somebody's a good critic, they can help you, they'll shortcut that process for you because they'll tell you what's there you know, and you can't see that yourself. So that's, I think, really important. Plus that's when you know you've got a, a true friend that'll tell you what they really think, not that's the right. social polite thing that'll just move this along so we can yeah. have dinner and, and move on with our lives. Yeah, and that's what I have in that writing group that is that is so helpful. And I have some other readers who are really good too, but um, the writing group is particularly that helpful because it happens every other week, right? So I can go back and, and um, 
I don't, things don't get skewed. Cause sometimes if you keep going and there's something wrong, it's like, it's like hanging wallpaper, you know, and you get a little bit off way over on that side of the wall. But then by the time you get to the end, you've got a big triangle that's empty because it was just a little bit crooked. And then it keeps getting more and more crooked as you go. And, and a book can be like that too. You know, if you get off on a wrong tangent or something. So the writing group can help you with that too. Oh, I saw this. You're doing serial installments for the group to critique as you're going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, which is great. I love that because it's really, I didn't think one reason I never did a writing group was because I didn't think it would work with a novel. I really didn't. Um, novels are really difficult. It's really hard to teach the novel. I don't, you know, people, um, get into MFA programs, which are, you know, good for stories, but they're not really good for novels because they, they take so long and, you, you know, you don't know what they're going to be um, for a long time. They have to evolve. And and so, yeah, but this group, they haven't had any trouble with that. We're, we're looking at, well, three out of the four of us ha are working on novels. And it does get a little confusing sometimes because, you know, you'll bring a chapter and there'll be a character in there that maybe we saw six months ago, but we don't quite remember. But it's not really a problem. You know, we, we get it figured out and um, it's been really, it's been amazing. You have a writing group. I do. Yeah, uh, yeah. We should plug them real fast. It's the. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, have we have we present the young adult cannibals? I like that. Uh, including our previous guests, author Laura Martin and Shannon Alexander. I'm trying to think who else has published the uh, upcoming Lisa Phipps, who just got a great book deal, um, and uh, Sarah J. Schmidt, author of. Yes, uh, I know Sarah. I like her. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah. We see her at a bunch of local, but it's all of us Hoosier authors. It's such a small community. We're all bumping into each other on a regular basis, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. And I want more of you to come and teach for the Writer's Center, too. I, I want that, too. I've been bugging everybody. Laura has an ironclad excuse. Her schedule <laughs> makes me tired just hearing about it. Uh, but Sarah Schmidt, if you're watching this, what are you doing? Come teach at the Writer's Call Center. Uh, Shannon Alexander, let's go. <laughs> so, do it. Uh, well, speaking of, well, you know what, before we start talking about Indiana, because I do want to talk about Indiana and the Indiana Writers Center, but before we move on, I do want to say, who is the name of your agent? Should we plug them real fast? I have an agent right now. I'm looking okay. for an agent. Yeah, my agent just recently retired. So if anybody has the name of an agent, email me. <laughs> Well, the good news is you can find a list of more than a hundred different literary agents who've been interviewed and asked the same seven questions. Well, there at you go. Um, and look in the archives. So we're in good shape. <laughs> uh, let's talk. Uh, let's talk about Indiana because in uh, sure. stalking you online and, and checking out some of your previous interviews to prepare for this, um, I saw that you have been in the same house in Bravo since like 1968. 1969. 1969. Yep. So you are a, a Hoosier. You are here by choice. Uh, yep. What is it that, that's kept you here? What is it that you like about Indiana specifically? Well, it's home. You know, I mean, it is my home. I grew up in Hammond, Indiana, up near Chicago. Um, went to college uh, in Bloomington. Met my husband the first day that I was there as a freshman, which is pretty amusing. And that's serendipitous. Know, I know. How weird, huh? We're so married, too. Um, but so we came to Indianapolis in 1968 when he graduated and we have been in that little house in Broad Ripple since 1969. I love the neighborhood. It's a, it's a diverse neighborhood. We have a little pocket park across the street from our house. So we get to see all the little kids in the neighborhood. And my kids played there. My grandkids played there. 
and now we have neighbor kids that are playing there. So I, I love that. You know, in the summertime, they bring school buses of kids who are in daycare. And it sounds like it sounds like the beach. You know, you go over there, it smells like Capertone. Uh, it's really cool. I think Indianapolis is a, a a good city to be in. It's a navigable city. I don't. I mean, it's it's a conservative state, but in my life, I don't see those people. And I think we know who of whom I talk. Some people, for example, like our vice president, I don't see those kinds of people in my life, right? Um, I see writers and painters and the Writer Center recently moved to the um, Circle Center uh, Industrial Complex near Mass Ave in Indianapolis. And there are like dozens of artists who have galleries here. And so there's all kinds of interesting stuff going on. And so my life in Indiana as a writer is is wonderful. I, I love it. I mean, I love to be able to leave Indiana too. I teach um, every summer in Assisi in Italy with um, Art Workshop International. So I'll plug that for a minute and just say, it's a fabulous program. It's a two week program in Assisi in a, in a small family hotel, very cozy, very friendly program. Uh, I'll be there again next summer. So if you're interested, um, I highly recommend it. It's a wonderful program and you can go to Art Workshop International and, and find it. Um, so I, I do that. I like to travel. Um, love to go to New York when I can. But when I go to New York, I'm always ready to come home. You know, I like it here. I have a little red convertible with and I can put the top down and I can drive wherever I want. I can't do that in New York. <laughs> well, that activity is nice, but you miss life here among the corn. Yeah. I like, I like my life here. My family's here too. My, my, both my daughters are here. My sister's here. Um, my nephews are all here. So it's good. And I uh, wanted to ask you, I, not only have you lived here uh, since 1969, and I, I should mention my uh, wife and I, our, our first uh, home was in Broad Ripple. Oh, yeah. uh, I was born in Hammond. So we're, 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 uh, we're not know that. what high school did you go to? Well, I went to Lebanon High School. My dad worked okay. for the um, uh, for the Chicago Tribune uh, for a number of years, and so we lived in a town called Valparaiso, which is right next door to Hammond. And they, <laughs> Hammond had the better hospital at, at the time I was born. Uh, and then my dad got a job for the Indianapolis Star uh, and, and and moved us this way, and oh, we've been so uh, here in the Indiana surrounding Good area. Since. So. Um, but I wanted to ask you because so many, uh, so much of your fiction and, and my fiction as well uh, is set in Indiana, which mm -hmm. is sort of amusing because you'd think that having lived here in this nice, calm place, wanting to write something mm -hmm. more exciting, we'd write about more exciting places. But you're writing predominantly about Indiana. What is it that keeps you coming back to Indiana as a subject for fiction? Well, for one thing, it's what I know. You know, it's familiar to me, and I I like that. Um, I have a several. I have part of my book, An American Tune, is set in Northern Michigan, which is an area that I love and I spend some time in. And I have a book that's set in England, and I have a book that's set in Holland. But for the most part, yeah, they're uh, they're uh, they're here in Indiana. I don't know. I I don't find life to be any less interesting here than it is anywhere else. You know, we all have the same kinds of problems as human beings. We all laugh, we all cry, we all grieve, we all make mistakes and screw up and have to sort it out. And so, you know, I'm, I'm writing about the kind of, of people that I, that I know and that I love. Um, and so I, I don't necessarily feel like I need to go afield to, you know, for a setting. 
Makes sense to me. There you go. In my case, particularly since I'm writing about such fantastical things as zombies and haunted yeah. houses and, and the rest, <laughs> if I know the setting, if that's real, that's right. then maybe I can focus that. all my lies on the zombies and the, the haunted house and all the rest of it. That's right. Um, and since we're talking about Indiana writers, it, uh, I, I would feel that we had, had, had missed something terrible if we didn't at least bring up Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, Kurt yeah. Vonnegut, one of my favorite authors. I know that if you read Barbara Shoup's interview, uh, at middlegradeninja.com, your choice for author that you would most like to have lunch with, living or dead, is Kurt Vonnegut. Um, and, and one thing I love about Kurt Vonnegut is he is painted on the side of a building. Here. I know how cool. So is amazing! That? You walk around and like and there's somebody painted cool. on the building. It's not. It's not a football player. It's not a basketball player. I know. It's, it's Kurt Vonnegut and Mari Evans too. The poet is there, which is cool. So well, preach to the choir. Tell me what it is you love about Kurt Vonnegut and his writing and what you what you think that, that it is about him that speaks to Hoosiers. Well, I think he speaks to everyone. And I'm not sure he speaks to Hoosiers because <laughs> he's sort of a renegade. Um, but I think he's I think he speaks to smart Hoosiers, you know, people who understand the paradox of life and the complexity of life and have a strong sense of irony because that you know that was Kurt Vonnegut. I just think he's hilarious. I I love his mind. I love the way his mind takes off in in these areas that I I mean I could not even imagine you know where he goes. But then when he's writing these things that are totally off the wall, he just says the most amazing down to earth things. One of my favorite quotes of him. I know I won't be able to say it all, but it's the one about babies. Do you remember that one? And he says, "Hello, you got to be kind, babies." babies. Welcome to Earth. And he sort of says, and it, you know, gives a little description. And then at the end, he says, uh, the one thing you got to know, babies, God damn it, you've got to be kind. And I, even as I say that, I get that cold feeling on my head, you know, because it's, it is, it's, it's the absolute truth. And that's one reason why I love him too. He always tells the truth. He'll tell it in some sort of wacko way, but, you know, it, it just, it just, boondoggles you when you read it because he'll be dancing around something and then all of a sudden there's this big real thing that is so true and so shocking in its trueness and he had the courage to do that i i think that's amazing i just i you know when i was younger i didn't like him because i thought that he was too cynical and I thought that he, you know, sort of made fun of Indiana and, and whatever. But then as I read him more, especially when I went back and read um, Slaughterhouse-Five after he died, and I realized I hadn't even gotten it the first time. You know, it's just a book about time. And it's just, it's so deep and it's so amazing. And then, you know, Dan Wakefield, who is also an Indiana writer and who was a, a good friend of, of Vonnegut's, uh, edited the letters, Vonnegut's letters. Have you read those yet? Because they're amazing. I haven't read the letters. I have heard Dan Wakefield speak about the letters. Yeah. And the thing that I, it's a huge fat book. Um, and I, I could, I mean, you know, I, you know, I can't put books down, but I really, and I, I just love this book. And I, I just, from the letters, you could see what a kind person he was and how frustrated he got with the world, you know, and, and, all the things that he did. He was a very generous writer to other writers. He was a, he was a good person. He adopted his, uh, when his sister, I think his sister and brother-in-law died in a car crash or something. And he ended up adopting those three children and, and raising them as his own. 
but he was, you know, as he got older, like we all do, he got crabbier. <laughs> and, and it was, you know, I think harder for him to, to be patient. But I'll, I'll, I'll say only one thing more about Kurt Vonnegut. But I, years ago, he was at Butler. And I went to hear him and he was doing a Q&A at, at Butler in one of the classrooms. And it was when you could still smoke, you know, in, in classrooms. And he, he was smoking and he was a chain smoker and putting out his cigarettes in the chalk tray, which I thought was hilarious. Mm -hmm. And and then some kids said to him, um, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like, Mr. Vonnegut, now that you've been doing this for so long and you're such a popular writer, sort of like, I guess you know what you're doing. Could you just tell us how you do it? And he looked at the kid, he took a long drag off of his cigarette and he said, if I knew how the book was gonna turn out, why would I write it? And I just, I just like sat up in my seat and I thought, Oh my God, that's how I thought I was doing it wrong because I felt that way. You know, I don't know what I'm doing most of the time. And so it was a great moment for me because it, it really changed my perception of what, what it was. I mean, when I was a kid, I thought what it really meant was that if you were a writer, if you were, had the talent to be a writer, it just meant that you naturally had all these stories in your head and all you really needed was a typewriter and be able to type fast so they could. I mean, I really did. I really thought that's what it was all about. I didn't know anything else. And, and then I began to really think about it. I had started writing then and I was feeling like a failure because I didn't know what I was doing. And, and then I began to realize finally that really your imagination is no more the ability than the ability to ask what if. That's all it is. You say, what if, what if, what if? That's what you do when you get stuck. What if, what if? And you can do that forever. And sometimes you go back to the thing you thought of first, but sometimes you don't. So that was a great moment for me. Um, I never got to know him. My friend, Susan Neville um, knew him really well. And he would call her up in the middle of the night sometimes and <laughs> be worried about something. He was kind of sweet that way. <laughs> I was just thinking if I could uh, have the opportunity to chat with Kurt Vonnegut, he could smoke in whatever room. I know, room me too. Fine. He can do whatever he it, wants. It's my bed. You go ahead. Put the oh, ashtray yeah. right on my pillow. It's fine, Mr. Vonnegut. <laughs> I saw him speak uh, over at IUPUI before I had read any of his novels. And it's one oh, of my yeah? great regrets in life because I was excited to, to, to hear a writer. But then I went and I, I've read um, with the Kurt Vonnegut guys. I should plug them real fast. There's a podcast. It's, it's already concluded. So all the content is out there waiting for you. Uh, but the Kurt Vonnegut guys was the name of the podcast. Uh, and they went through and they uh, did a weekly show or a monthly show on every one of Kurt Vonnegut's novels. So I read every one of his novels along oh, with them. That was fantastic. Yeah. But uh, I remember I, I had an issue with him when I was younger because I read Mother Night and I really felt like he didn't make the most of what a, a, an outstanding premise that novel had and that he was more concerned with, uh, with theme uh, and oh, what he wanted to say about human nature where I was like, well, you could have done another hundred pages of just <laughs> running around in chases, and we have great, yeah. uh, great Nazi spy that's also an American. What a wonderful uh, opportunity! Uh, but that's just not the kind of writer he was. And then I read, um, oh, what was it? Uh, Breakfast of Champions, uh, and I was just on my back, depressed for a weekend. And my wife kept saying, well, what's what's wrong? I'm like, Vonnegut, Breakfast of Champions. <laughs> oh, I'm not reading that book for sure. That that will take your weekend away from you. But then I read God God bless you, Mister Rosewater, that's and it perked me up and that's got me all rage. Yeah, that's the babies. Yeah. Yeah. Quote I, I, I do I love Slaughterhouse Five, and I love—I um, can't remember the name of it—but it's the one about the 
the abstract impressionist painter who's famous because he used cheap paint and all of the paint fell off of his paintings. I oh, think, the two uh, people in London on the beach. What is Bluebeard. the name of that? Is it Bluebeard? So, yes, it is. It is yeah, Bluebeard. Bluebeard. I love that painting. Um, but, you know, there's also, for those who don't know, the Kurt Vonnegut Memorial Library here in Indianapolis, which is a very cool organization and an actual place you know, where you can go and um, talk to people who are really into Vonnegut and they have his typewriter and some other kinds of cool things. So it's downtown. Man, Kurt Vonnegut was a great Indiana writer. You know who is what? also a great Indiana writer? Barbara Shoup. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. Let's, uh, let's, let's talk about you and talk about the Writer Center. Because one thing that, that fascinated me is you started off taking classes. I did. Uh, at the Writer Center and then rose up now to be the executive director. So tell us about that journey and how you pulled that off. <laughs> well, I started taking classes here. And then over the years, I taught and I was on the board. And in 2008, when, you know, the economy was just, such a mess and it, it's always hard for nonprofits to get funding, but it was virtually impossible at that moment. And so I sort of found myself saying, well, I guess I could do this. Our, our director had resigned and we didn't have money to hire a new one or to pay her if she had decided to stay for that matter. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I found myself saying, well, I guess I could do that on a volunteer basis for a while. And then I was like, who said that? because it isn't something I ever thought I was gonna do. And it certainly wasn't anything I had, I didn't know anything about managing anything. And there was some reason to believe I shouldn't be managing anything. But um, but as it turned out, I have really enjoyed it. And this will be uh, my 10th year. Uh, uh, when we kind of come to the end of this year, it will have been 10 years. And I thought, you know, maybe I'd be here a year or two years, but it's been really fun because we have really, um, sort of focused the Writer Center. I think we were trying to do too many things. And, you know, I thought, what do we do really well? We do classes really well. And we do a gathering of writers really well. Um, so we, what we don't do always so well, um, it's hard to get audiences for readings and programs like that. And you can spend a lot of time on that when you could be spending time on programs where you can get an audience. So we, you know, we just kind of did this. We paired things away. And, uh, and then in terms of funding, we could get funding for outreach programs. And I, you know, I'm a teacher, I love to teach, and I think that's really important. So um, we started doing a summer learning program for kids, which we've been doing now for 10 years. Um, we go to three sites uh, every summer and uh, work with about 225 to 250 at-risk kids. We have college interns, we have volunteers, and writers are the teachers, which is really cool. And the kids write the stories of their lives, and we publish them in a book, which is amazing, you know, to get a, to hold a book, you know, hold a book in your hands with your story in it. They think that's pretty neat. Um, and then we also do memoir projects. We um, did a memoir project with the women at Wheeler, homeless women. We did one with victims of domestic abuse. We did one with American uh, women veterans. So when we do that, we with the veterans, for example, Sherry Wagner, who was formerly a poet laureate of, Indi of Indiana, uh, was the instructor. And those workshops meet for 12 weeks. People write uh, and they, you know, they revise and they, they work toward a collection of stories, which we then publish in an anthology. And um, it, it's it's pretty cool. We just got funding to do a workshop in partnership with Gender Nexus uh, for gender diverse people. 
So that's going to be happening after the first of the year. So, you know, the Writers' Center is more pared down in some ways than it was before, but it's also expanded and been enriched by the outreach programs that we do. And I really love those. I just finished doing a 12-week program with Asante Children's Theater here in Indianapolis. And that's an amazing organization that works with young people, teaching them theater skills. And they do, you know, they do all these performances. They're really, really good. And they've been around for about 20 years. So uh, we cooked up a project and it was it's called Word Dance, a family writing project. So for 12 weeks, we had 21 people representing eight families, interesting configurations, one sort of traditional family, mom, dad, and a couple kids, um, several mother, daughter, one married couple, two sisters in their 60s. So it was, you know, it was a really interesting um, age group. And they they wrote and we're now putting together a book of their stories, which I can't wait to, to see. And that will be ready for their uh, Christmas time holiday performance in the beginning of December. So we're doing all kinds of interesting stuff and it's fun. Well, it's going to be just life changing for these at risk kids or for anybody that you know um, it is. hold that book in their hands and say, I wrote this. I'm, yeah. I'm part of the conversation. Yeah. And particularly with the memoir projects, um, you know, these people really bond. And I, I you know, talking to some of the America of the women veterans about it, they, they talked about how they, they told and wrote things that they had never shared with anybody, you know, even their their husbands or close, you know, close friends. And they, you know, they sort of established this um, little community of trust and they support one another. And it's, it's really, it's really good. It's, it's, it's a helpful thing. And, you know, we know that writing is good for us. Research tells us that writing is healing. Writing brings insight and, you know, they're using it more and more as a, as a kind of therapy for people trying to sort out their lives for a variety of kinds of reasons. So what is it that you find um, most gratifying about the Writing Center? And I'm, I'm assuming there's something uh, that keeps you going that you've been doing it for so long. I love making the connections. I love that. I, I really get a kick out of connecting this person with that person. Um, I love, you know, doing the workshops. I love kids. I love the little kids. I, I just love that. And that I will always love. Um, I just think they're so funny. You know, one kid, when we asked for evaluations and I got was going through them and I just laughed out loud because it said, what did you like? And he said, I like nothing except for the snakes. And he meant snacks, which, you know, to me just totally made my day. Most of the rest of them did really like it, but you know, I love that. It's so much fun. And I, I love watching the light bulb go on in people's eyes when they get it, you know, when they see something about themselves or their lives. I was doing a workshop, a uh, memoir workshop someplace. It was, it was uh, I guess it was at Ball State a couple of months ago. And we did this exercise about remembering. And one of the women sort of burst into tears and she said, I never realized I had everything wrong about this memory before. You know, it didn't happen where I thought it happened. It didn't happen when I thought it happened. And, and you know, the ways that you can learn to trigger people into vision, you know, images of, of memories is just, it's just, it's amazing to watch. So I am fascinated by the creative process. I, I love to look at the creative process. And I did um, this book, um, which I'll give a little plug to, which is called Novel Ideas, which has um, a little bit of front matter about writing novels, but it also has 
the best part are these interviews with wonderful novelists who talk about how they work. I mean, they're not talking about the usual things they talk about. They're talking about how that, where that novel came from and how it evolved and how it was revised and how they generally revise. So one thing I love about the Writer's Center is I just get to watch all these people in various stages of the, of the creative writing and observe how they manage it and how they don't manage it and sometimes get them jump started, you know, so that they can move on or get started or whatever. I get a kick out of it. I love to teach. Um, so I love that about the Writer's Center. It also eats up an awful lot of my time and energy. So um, I wish that it weren't maybe, I wish, actually what I wish is that days were longer because then I could, you know, if I could have 48 hours, that would be cool because I would have time for everything. But then I'd fill those up, wouldn't I? So. Yeah. Oh, if I had 48 hours, I'd probably spend 24 hours diligently working, but then like 12 hours at least, it's just going to get wasted on PlayStation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can always find, you know, I'm not a good relaxer. I have never learned how to relax. One of the reasons I like to go on road trips with my husband is that it's really the only place I can't go anywhere if I'm in the car, right? So I sit there and I breathe and I read or I knit or whatever. Um, but relaxing is not, not good. I, I just don't know how to do it. So I'm always doing something. Or thinking I should do something anyway. <laughs> well, as a beneficiary of the Indiana Writer Center, I guess that I'll just go ahead and register my my pleasure that you, well, there you go. Uh, that you can't relax that it continues <laughs> to benefit all of well, us. Work, work harder. <laughs> <laughs> no, I should uh, take a moment and, and and thank you sincerely for inviting me to teach at the Indiana Writer Center because it's been. Uh, just one of the most uh, exciting uh, things that I've done for oh, my writing wow. is because I'm, I'm uh, now leading my third workshop yeah. uh, and getting these folks that are where I was earlier in my writing career and kind of working with them on writing has taught me more about my writing. Uh, when I hear them parrot excuses for why they can't write, I, know. I hear a little bit of myself like, oh, yeah. I, I'm you. I'm so glad I can tell you why not to do that because now I can tell me. Yeah, you learn. I mean, I would find, especially with the high school kids, I would have to think, now, they don't get this, right? They don't, I, I would say, that sentence is not clear. I remember this moment. And the kid just didn't get what I was trying to say to him. And and so I said to him, surprising myself, it's like, it's like uh, fractions. It's like, you know, when you get to the least common denominator, there's no place else you can go. And when a sentence is clear, it can only mean one thing. And he was like, oh, and I was like, oh, you know, and, and, you know, those kinds of things that you learn or those insights that come to you as, as you're teaching, I, I just love those moments. I think it's really, really fun. Well, and I, I would also add that everybody loves the class. The left brain concept. Said, I'm just laughing that you went to math to explain a left brain concept. I know. Well, believe me, that, that's very amusing to me, too. I, I was very surprised when I said it. But, um, you know, so we we love to have good teachers. And your classes have gotten great evaluations. So if there's anybody out there thinking about taking a class. Uh, Sarah Schmidt and Alexander, Alexander, come teach a class. There you go. Yeah. So where uh, where can Hoosiers that have seen us talk about Vonnegut now and the Indiana Writers Center, and they're all fired up about Indiana literature, how can they best support the Indiana Writers Center? Money. <laughs> sure. <laughs> where can they go to provide that money? You can go to our website, www.indianawriters.org, and there's a donation button. And you know what? One of the things that meant the most to me when I first started doing this um, we were, you know, 
really struggling at that first year. And we sent out a letter to our people, members and whatever. And we got a boatload of really small donations, you know, $10, $20, $25. And people think, well, you know, that's no big deal. But actually, it is a big deal. So, you know, if you can help that way, we really need it. And we really appreciate it. You know, you can get project grants, but it's very difficult to get grants for operating expenses. And we, you know, we make money from our programs and all that. But, um, but it's a struggle. So any help that, you know, that you can give and you can share that information with others, um, you can sign up to our Facebook page and, and you can share the things that are going on at the Writers' Center. That's really helpful when people spread the word about our programs um, and just talk us up. You know, if, if anybody's interested in writing, tell them to come and talk to us. I think one of the things we do that is very important is that we offer free advice to people about, you know, publishing. And I mean, we can't really help you get your book published, walk you through the steps, but there are lots of scams out there these days. And you, you know, as a beginning writer, you really need to be sure of what you're doing before you put any money out there or get your heart set on something. And, and so, you know, we know about that stuff and, and we're always glad to help people in any way, in any way that we can. Um, you can become a member of the Indiana Writers Center, which is also, of course, helpful to us. And it also gives you a discount on classes. Um, there's also a discounted membership for students and seniors and veterans and teachers, uh, which is very reasonable. And, and so, yeah, just become involved and, and tell other people about us. If you have a rich uncle, send him our way. <laughs> You're in Indiana and you're watching this. You like Barbara Shoup. You like me. We're both at the Indiana Writers Center. Go. Come out, become a member. Yeah. So what? Uh, what do you think? Uh, what? What's? What's uh, in the horizon? What's the future for the Indiana Writers Center? Hold, do you think? Well, uh, 2019 is is our 40th anniversary and my 10th anniversary. So it's kind of a big year for us. We made the move, as I said earlier, to Circle Center um, Industrial Complex which has been great for us. People seem to really like it. We have much nicer space than we used to have. So we'll be spending the year celebrating um, that anniversary and hoping that that will help us with our fundraising. Um, Jim Powell, who was the founder of the Writers' Center in 1979, uh, we're gonna be publishing a book of his short stories, which we're pretty excited about as part of that celebration. And, uh, you know, we're in, in the process of planning. We'll have our gathering of writers, as, as we always do. And that's always a great day. That's March 9th on Saturday. And it is um, at the Indiana State Library, which is just a gorgeous place to have it. It's just very inspiring. So I think, I hope the future is good. Um, I know that we get great evaluations on all of our programs. I know that the work we do really matters. And it depends on people, you know, being willing to sell, to, to recognize that and, and to, to support us. Um, we need you guys, you know, we need, we need help from those who love books and writing. I'm excited to come out and support Jim Powell. He was one of my first yeah. uh, writing teachers. Oh yeah. And my wife and I still talk about, he threw a party at the end of one of the semesters. Uh, and she wasn't my wife then, she was my girlfriend. Uh, and we went and we ran out of booze relatively early because we're all broke college students and sure. we, we hadn't done much. And 
Jim Powell, in addition to being an amazing writer, is an amazing party host because I've never <laughs> seen anybody more resourceful and just pulling out bottles of booze he, he from around the house. <laughs> I've been in some of those myself. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy. And I'm really thrilled to be able to do their wonderful stories. He hadn't written for a long time and kind of got back to it uh, maybe about five years ago. And I just think we're so lucky to be able to do that as part of, you know, our 40th year. It's kind of a cool thing, I think. So, yeah. Well, he is a great writer, great instructor. I still think yes. of things he said to me about my writing that unfortunately I'm still struggling with. Yeah. And I can think back to what he told me on how to fix it. And like, if I just listened to Jim Powell the first time, I go. wouldn't be having this he issue again. He's a terrific critic. He's a very good reader. So yeah, you were lucky to have him. So what was the date on the celebration? When should people come out? Uh, the gathering of writers is March 9th. And you can actually sign up for that um, early there's an early bird price. So you can go to our website and, you know, look for gathering of writers. And we're having Ross Gay, who's a, a poet. Uh, we kind of cycle, we have fiction writer, poet, creative nonfiction. So it's poetry year. And he is a nominee. His uh, most recent book was, I think, nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and some other kinds of things. He's, he's a pretty amazing writer, teaches at IU Bloomington. So everybody come out, you'll be there. I'll be there. Jim Powell will be there. It'll be yep. amazing. I hope so. Yeah. Let's uh, pivot back and let's talk about your writing, uh, starting with one of my favorite novels, Looking for Jack Kerouac, which um, I reviewed in depth at middlegradeninja.com. Yes, I remember that. And thank you again. <laughs> what, uh, can you give kind of our uh, viewers just a brief summary of what the novel's about? Yeah, the novel is about a kid named Paul who lives up near where I grew up, up near Chicago in the Calumet region. And um, He's a football player. He's a good kid. He's never had any problems. Um, he goes to New York in the beginning. It's 1964. He goes to New York with, on a class trip at the beginning of the school year, and he's just totally gobsmacked when he gets to New York. He's never seen anything like it. He falls in love with New York. And while he's there, he goes to Greenwich Village, ditches his girlfriend, goes to Greenwich Village, and discovers Jack Kerouac's On the Road. So he is completely in love with this book. And so he comes home and things are not so good with his girlfriend <laughs> because suddenly he's, you know, the world is opened up for, for him. Um, and then in an unfortunate turn of events, his mother becomes very ill and his life really just is turned upside down. And so um, there's a there's a kind of a weird story behind this book from for me because I got the idea from a friend of mine, Skip Barry, who was thinking about, it was his idea. He was thinking about doing it as a screenplay. And when he told me about it, I said, wow, that's a cool idea. Um, could I use it if you don't want it? And, you know, I was kidding. And, and he's, yeah, sure. And then a couple of years later, he said, I'm not going to use that idea. You can have it if you want it. So I started working on it and um, I couldn't, I just couldn't get it. You know, I couldn't get it to work. Um, and so I, I put it away. And then very sadly, one of my sisters was diagnosed with um, terminal brain cancer. She had two sons who were the ages of the boys in that book. And after she died, I mean, you can imagine it was a pretty horrible period of time. Um, and were the boys I, a similar age to the boys in the book? Yeah, exactly the same age, actually. And so not long after she died, I had this weird moment where I suddenly saw my sister in my mind's eye and I thought, she's the girl. And then after I thought that, I started thinking, what if, you know, what if 
what happened to my nephews happened to the boy in the book. So that the book then becomes not just a road trip book, which it sort of was before, and it was not very interesting, you know, it's pretty predictable, but it becomes a road trip fueled by grief, right? And so to me, that was what made me able to write the book. And that was what interested me in it because I'm always, when I'm writing fiction, I'm always looking sideways at something else, you know, that I can't understand if I look straight on at it. And so what I, you know, what I was looking at was what that must have been like for my nephews. Um, and, and I tried to, you know, get into the head of the older boy, um, who's not really like my nephew at all, but nonetheless, that was, that was where the actual substance of the book came from. So, so anyway, uh, the, the book, Eventually, um, he graduates from college. His girlfriend wants to get married. He doesn't want to get married. And he ends up meeting this guy, Duke, because he goes to work at the Steel Forge, which is where all the guys I knew when I was in high school went to work. And they hook up together, realize they both love this book, and they decide they're going to take off. And so they do. And they find Jack, um, who was a wreck. You know, I didn't, I'm not really a Kerouac fan, or I wasn't. Um, but when I did the research on him, I became really fascinated by him and by his life and, and by how he really was not the person people thought that he was. He was shy. He was kind of tenderhearted. Um, and he, and he didn't really know how to handle that fame and it really ruined him. So by the time 1964 came along and my character discovered him, he was living in Orlando, Florida in this crappy little house with his mother. Who was, they were both crazy. Um, and they were alcoholics, yeah. They were, yeah, they were alcoholics. He died of, of alcoholism a few years after that. And so um, I, not, I not only, when I changed the sort of focus of the book, I had to think about what Kerouac could say to him, you know, what, what he could say to my character, Paul, because it was going to be a different kind of thing that Paul sort of wanted from him. So all in all, it was a very interesting book to write that way. And the thing that Kerouac ultimately says to Paul is really what I needed to hear myself, which is essentially, you don't ever get over that. You know, how could you get over that, right? Um, and that's kind of what frees him up to, to move, you know, move on with his, his life. So it was really an interesting book to write. I like yeah, it. Yeah, have me in tears by the end of this. Oh, <laughs> oh, we'll fine. But that was a was, so that was kind of a way for you to process. Mm -hmm. It was a way for me to process. But through a, a, a character with a different relationship. Yeah. yeah, I always think of it as sideways. I'm always doing that. Um, my uh, one, my most recent adult book that's called American Tune um, came from the fact that I I had a really good friend when I was in college. She's still a good friend, who. Um, was involved in a very famous kidnapping. <laughs> you probably were, weren't born yet, but if you Google it, it was the Patty Hearst kidnapping. Oh, sure. You know, you, you don't I remember. I famous from before I was born, absolutely. Yeah, and there were like five people from Indiana who were involved in that, three people from Indiana, and she was one of them. And so, you know, one of my questions, early questions in my young adult life was, how does that happen? You know, how does somebody who's really a good person and a smart person and, you thought a reasonable person, you know, what makes you cross that line? That's a really interesting question. And so that's what I was trying to see, you know, when I was writing that book, which well, wasn't. Let me, uh, let me ask you, when you're looking sideways at something like that, are you trying to figure out 
uh, what would make you cross the line and be in trouble? Or are you trying to figure out what about my neighbors that I should I be watching out for? With that, well, they really, go a little bit well, off. You know, because for me, when that happened, I was 25 and I got married when I was really young and had, uh, you know, I had just had a new baby when that happened, my second child at 25. And, you know, I was feeling a little bit stuck where I was and all that. Um, and, and while, you know, well, I wouldn't want to have to kidnap somebody. I did sort of part of me was envious of that kind of passion, you know, that you would make you do something so drastic because you believed in it so much. But it also made me really think about things I hadn't thought of before. Like, you know, I came from growing up thinking, well, anybody who would do something like that and end up in prison was just a bad person, right? But what if somebody that you really love and, and know is not a bad person? How are you supposed to think about that then? Do you just say, well, I don't want to be friends with that person anymore. I don't believe that. You know, I think a friend is a friend. And and so it, it really upended, you know, I think it was probably for me when I began to understand how gray things were, you know, as opposed to the black and white, good and evil, right and wrong and all that. So it, it, it was, it was hard to process. It's important, though, to, to, to learn that, that things are that grace so that you yeah. can forgive others and forgive yourself for the... Right. Well, I have another book of mine, which is this, um, I think I showed you this before, Stranded in Harmony, is was my first attempt to, to come to terms with that. And it's a young adult book. So if you're looking for a young adult book, it's a completely different kind of book about a kid who lives in a small town in Indiana and... Um, a woman comes to town, you know, a stranger comes to town and she's a woman with a past and her past is similar to the past of my friends. So something I've been, you know, working through my mind for a lot of years. I remember I was in uh, one of your workshops, which of course was excellent. And the next time one is offered, everybody should attend. <laughs> um, but uh, you had a, um, it's what I've thought of as like a little John Doe uh, from the movie Seven uh, type of uh, was a composition pad just filled with notes and oh, things yeah, from yeah. Uh, an American tune. It's like, oh my God, if it were possible to just walk into Barb Shoup's mind, this notebook would you be. You don't it. want to go there. It's a mess. I mean, it's <laughs> like that is like the inside of my mind when I'm working through a novel. I, I should have thought to bring one. I could have. I could have showed you, but um, when I start a book and I feel like it's really gonna, you know, really starting to cook, like it's gonna happen. I will start a new notebook and I date it every day that I work on it in red ink. And it's just sort of a, I mean, it's not anything formal, it, whatever I'm working on. If I have a question, I'll write it in there. Sometimes I do research and paste it in, you know, type it up and paste, uh, print it, paste it in there. I do timelines and calendars and outlines. And, you know, I'll, if I'm looking for a character's name, you'll see a bunch of names, you know, where I'm trying to, figure out what to name them. So it's just a place for things to be, you know, that's helpful to me. If it makes it feel grounded, if I didn't write it down, I, I wouldn't remember it if I needed to remember it. And if I wrote it down on a piece of paper, I would lose it. So I just put it all in this one notebook and, and I get kind of curious about my own process. You know, it's so weird. And I, I'll paste pictures in there, things that seem to be in some way relevant to me, you know, you would look through it and you couldn't make any sense of it at all. And I probably might not be able to make sense of it at all either. Um, if I went back and I, don't, and I don't really go back and use it as research very often. Sometimes I do, but not much. Mostly it's just, to me, I feel like it's grounding. It's, it's grounding. 
for the Isn't novel. Isn't that a gratifying thing about having uh, written novels uh, is that you're not the same person oh, yeah. 10 years later that you can go yeah. back and say, oh, this is a snapshot of my brain at yeah. that time. And I don't <laughs> think half of this stuff anymore. I feel pity for the readers that, that are reading it. Yeah, <laughs> a mess. And both uh, both an American tune and uh, looking for Jack Kerouac are both set heavily in the '60s. Jack Kerouac entirely, and most of Amer an American yeah. tune is in the '60s. So, what is it about the 1960s that that speaks to you that calls you back so often? Well, it's my coming of age time. I graduated from high school in 19, uh, 1965, so you know that's the time um, that I grew up and that I'm you know, really familiar with. And you may be amused to know that when um, when Jack, the Jack book was <laughs> was reviewed in Publishers Week, Weekly, and it got a really good review, but it started out with this historical novel. And I thought, oh my God, I am so old. <laughs> about my own adolescence. And, and that was kind of a wake up call for me. But, you know, I think we go back to those. It's an interesting period of time. It was in a lot of ways a really hopeful period of time, and and I don't think those hopes panned out very well. You know, um, people believed in peace, but they didn't achieve peace. And a lot of people that I know, uh, you know, who might have been active in in some of those things, ended up leading pretty traditional lives. Um, some are even Republicans, which is shocking, but true. Um, well, we keep glancing sideways at politics, I suppose, yeah. this close election. We should both firmly stand behind everybody. Get out November 6th or before. Please Make sure you vote. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's shocking how many people don't vote in our country. It really is crazy. Um, it, it isn't something that we should take for granted. And we can make a difference if everybody does it, especially in the midterms, because, you know, we don't have to battle with that stupid, um, I know I can't think of the name of it, but you know what, I, the, the that makes the votes. Thank you. I'm having a senior moment. The electoral college. Thank you. The electoral. Right. Yes, you win the electoral college. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we don't have to battle with that. We've got some, you know, local people. We could really make a difference. So yeah, do it. Vote. I think this is the most important election, certainly in my lifetime, uh, and I think in most of our lifetimes that we, we need yeah, to get out there. Young people. I mean, young people. Really? I mean, they're coming up. They're the people that are going to inherit this stuff. So they better vote and at least diminish some of the mess as fast as they can, because it's it's not a good world right now. It's not a happy place. So, yeah, we have to be responsible for that. All right. Well, that concludes the public service announcement. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk about Duke. Getting back to looking for Jack Kerouac. I love Duke. I know you love Duke. Duke is a uh, conspiracy theorist, and it's so so interesting to read about him because he has conspiracy theories about uh, Vietnam and about yep. um, the Gulf of Tonkin, which we now know because Robert true. McNamara right. came out and said it, it was fabricated. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he's, he, he knows it at the time, and he also has suspicions about John F. Kennedy, yeah. which I don't know when the Zapruder film came out. I know it was two or three years later uh, with Geraldo, of all people. Um, yeah. So he, he's the one that, that at the time. When I, was, when I was still in high school and, and college and whatever, that that was still a huge controversy about what, you know, what really happened to JFK. And I don't think we'll ever know. I mean, I don't. There, there are a lot of really interesting ways of looking at it that seem feasible. Do you um, have a theory? I don't really. Um, but 
I do think it's pretty, I mean, when you really look at what they say happened, it's pretty sketchy. I mean, it depends on a lot of, you know, pretty sharp shooting and coincidences. And I, I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't, let, let's just say I wouldn't be surprised to, to, to find out if I found out that it had been something else. And, you know, with the whole Vietnam thing, um, that was just people lied and that was so shocking. And I, you know, I think for a lot of people in my generation, those, those lies and, and the things that happened were, I don't know, they, they just made people pretty cynical up until then. I think people pretty much believed in our country and then they didn't. And the truth is, I don't think they ever probably should have because I, I'll put myself way out on a limb right now. And I will say that it is hard for me to think that a, a country that was founded on the destruction of native native people and on slavery is ever going to really be okay. You know, we haven't dealt with those problems. We have to deal with those problems. If, if we're going to be a country that is what, even half of what we say we are. Um, and, you know, and for me, I'm, I'm writing about that, you know, when I'm writing about an American tune and when I'm writing about the, the, the Kerouac book and, and some other kinds of things too. And one thing that I, that I love about, Young people, as they keep asking those questions, people stop asking questions when they grow up. And another one occurred, Vonnegut's great ones was, I can't, of course I can't put it exactly, but it was sort of like, writers are people who keep asking the same sophomoric questions that most people stop asking when they leave high school. You know, like, <laughs> why? <laughs> why yeah. does it have to be that way? Why don't people tell the truth? Why are people so mean? Um, and and it just kind of gets, gets under your skin in a way it doesn't other people that 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 injustice yeah. and that that unfairness that's inherent in the system it does yeah i mean i will not i just can't not see it i can't not see it and and i think that um writers the good writers are people who can't not see things you know we we see things we don't necessarily want to see things and writing is a place to put them where are you going to put them and those can be wonderful things too you know um sometimes you can be so happy that you you think you can't survive and what are you supposed to do with that? You know, I think writers are people who experience a really wide range of emotion and they don't, writing brings balance. You know, the writing helps balance you out, balances your life. That's what it does for me. Um, I really need it. it. It's not something I do. I mean, I do love it, but it's, it's more than I need it. And at some point in my life, I understood that. And I think, you know, for people who want to be writers or think that they want to be writers, that's a question to ask yourself. Do you, do you need it? You know, is it something that you really need to do? Are you going to get to the end of your life and ask, you know, ask yourself, you know, I, did I do it? Didn't I do it? And am I sorry? Um, you gotta be, I think you just have to be really brutally honest with yourself about a lot of stuff. And, and I, I think that's hard to do, you know, but there you go. I tell a lot of the people in my workshop, that uh, if or, uh, finishing your, your fiction uh, class, you're finishing your novel, I tell them that if I can convince them to never write again, that they can just put that down yeah. and not be burdened by it and walk away free, that's more than justified the cost of admission. You're welcome. Enjoy your life. <laughs> you know what? I think you're absolutely right because you're never not writing. I mean, and I don't mean it in a literal way, but wherever you are, whatever you're doing, you are slightly apart from everybody else and you are watching 
you know, and you're taking in these things and trying to figure out what they are and how to think about them. But I think writers are people who are always standing on the outside and they're, they're trying to figure things out. And if you're not that kind of person, and if you, um, you know, if you enjoy, if you don't need to write, don't, you know, don't feel like you have to. There's no law that said you have to just because you said you wanted to. Um, I think a lot of people say they want to write before they really understand what writing is. And it's really, really hard. It's very hard. And publishing is even weirder. You know, um, you have to learn what you can control and what you can't control and accept things when they don't go your way. Um, it's not easy. Have you been able to, to make peace with the publishing process? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think I'm really fortunate. I've been able to publish um, eight novels and in good places. You know, uh, some of them are New York novels. One was in uh, Indiana University Press. And, you know, they're they're good, respectable pla uh, places. But I have never made any money from my novels. You know, um, I would be starving to death if I depended upon them for, for income. My novels get good reviews, but they don't sell a whole lot. And, and that's partly my own fault because I'm not a good I'm not a good marketer. I don't know how to do it. It's it's against my all my instincts, you know. I grew up in a family where my mom always said, "Don't brag, don't brag." And essentially, marketing is bragging. You know, you put yourself out there. You try to get people to buy what you made, and I that's just way out of my comfort level. And I don't think publishers do very much for books these days, if they ever did. Um, you know, it's a dumb business. They throw all that stuff out there, and you know, some stuff sinks, some stuff swims, and they they have. You know, they put a lot of money into a very few books, every list. And that doesn't serve mid-list writers very well. You know, um, when I first started out, you could, you know, you could publish and you'd get, this would have been like 1980, a $5,000 advance. And there were a lot of those kinds of advances. And, and they were kind of an investment, you know. Publishers would invest to see what would happen. Um, but that's that's doesn't happen much anymore. And a lot, of, a lot of places don't give any advances at all. So it's a very difficult thing to decide to do. And I, I think almost everybody um, has to have a day job. Um, I'm an idiot because I actually don't have to have a day job because I have a fabulous spouse who's fine with me doing whatever I want to do. But part of why I have a day job is because that also balances things for me. You know, if I were only writing and I were only measuring my... I don't even like to use the word success, but you know what I mean. Uh, if I were only measuring myself with writing, it would be a lot, I would be more depressed than I am already. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, when I'm doing something in the world that I know makes a difference to other people and I know that I do it pretty well, that helps me balance that thing out. So I, th I would say, yes, I have really made peace with it, but I don't really like it. You know, I think we all still wish that we'll have a book that will take off and sure. that would be a really cool thing. But I'm getting kind of old for that. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> I want to say there's uh, nothing idiotic about marrying while I've done the same thing. Thank God. <laughs> good advice, you know, don't marry another writer. <laughs> no, that's uh, one thing we've, we've decided within my writers group is like none of us could be married to each other. We all need non-writers oh, no. or we're What's in that? Writers are so crazy. You know, they're up and down and up and down and up and down. Whereas if you marry like a regular person who really likes you and is really stable and, you know, it's not a bad idea. 
I know that uh, Barnes and Noble here. I, I'm gonna get it wrong because I don't have the exact figure in front of me, but I believe they've gone through five C or four no five CEOs in four years, <laughs> and right now they're running their operations on a credit line, which is a terribly precarious position to be in. Uh, back when I was in finance and advising people on stocks, I just said Barnes and Noble is the one to short. That that one's going down. Yeah. Sooner or later. I don't know the future. I, I really hope that I'm wrong. But sooner or later, I think Barnes & Noble probably will go the way of Borders. And then we'll have independent uh, bookstores. Yeah. What do you think the future looks like for writers and for publishing? I don't know. I mean, I think it's really sad that they're, I mean, we should have a good independent bookstore here in Indianapolis. We're a big city. We should have one. We don't. And that's really pathetic. Um, and the chains, I mean, it's wonderful to have a Barnes and Noble, but they have their own thing. You know, they, they, the way they buy, the way they sort of manipulate, um, writers and publishers, that's not so good either. Um, people don't like Amazon, but on the other hand, for writers like me and for you too, um, all right, our books are not going to be in, in Barnes and Noble and the chain stores are yours. Yeah. Oh, yours are. Well, good for you. That's great. But, um, you know, mine don't go on the, there because my sales have don't have a, you know, don't have a, I don't have a good sales history. So like when Jack came out, uh, Jack Kerouac came out, they didn't take it. They didn't choose to take it. So the only place you can get my books is Amazon. So I have mixed feelings about, you know, how evil Amazon is because without Amazon, my books would not be available at all. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think, um, electronic books I thought were awful until I started reading on my Kindle and I'm fine reading on my Kindle. I love reading on my Kindle. I don't mind. Um, I also love the library. I, I honestly, I don't know. I think it's so just such a real, really weird time in, in the world right now. It's hard to predict how anything's going to be. And I do think, you know, um, young people have a lot more and older people have a lot more options than they used to have. You know, reading was, one of a few options you might have when I was growing up. Um, but now, you know, you've got your phone, you've got, you can watch a movie whenever you want. You've, you've got video games, you've, you've got everything in the world that will take up your time. And reading is not necessarily what a lot of kids are choosing. So, well, what I don't know is how many people ever read, you know, we get into that thing where we say, Oh, you know, people used to be this and that, but yeah, you know, I don't know that many people that read when I was growing up. So maybe I hope there will always be a community of serious readers and there will always be books for them, I hope. So long as they sign up and become members at the Indiana Writers Center. That's right. Well, well I only hear locally. Let's uh, talk just a little bit about young adult literature, and then I'm going to let you go. I don't want to. I don't want. I want to be respectful of your time, but I did want to talk with you just because you've written eight novels. Yeah. Uh, all available uh, at barbershoop.com. Yeah. So there, I'm going to help you out with uh, with your your reluctance in marketing. Go to barbershoop.com <laughs> by looking for Jack here. Whack! It's an amazing novel. You're going to have a good time. Um, so. Of those eight novels, five are young adult. Right. Uh, you seem to be um, attracted again and again to young adult stories. What is it about uh, young adult protagonists and young adult novels that, that you think appeals to you? I I like the age. I like the coming of age. I like the I like the fact that they're 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 turn i like turning point i call them turning point novels a certain kind of novel where a character something happens that brings a lot of things to bear in the character's life 
and that it creates an arc of things that happen that come down um, on the other end where the character has resolved something um, or or discovered that it can't be resolved, you know, whatever, and that 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 can and can move on into the next phase of its life. Those are books that don't generally um, take up a lot of time. I mean, the time frame of those books is usually a year or less, um, and I like that. I like that, you know, kind of kind of time frame to work with, and I like the the you know the coming of age thing is is great for that turning point kind of novel. You know, and that's the kind of novel I like to write. And I am just, I'm really fascinated. I remain fascinated by that age. I was not a happy adolescent. Um, I'm still trying to figure out why did I not get that date to the prom? And could I possibly get them now? You know? um, so are you, are you still trying to be cool in high school? <laughs> I am. It's never too late. That's what I tell myself. But it's really that I'm just fascinated by it. And I, you know, I, I love to be around kids that age and watch them, you know, and I, I love to wonder, you know, why is that girl popular? But why can't they see that girl's really cool, too? But, you know, nobody's paying attention to her. And the same with boys, you know. Um, and one of the things I loved about teaching and still love is sometimes I would see in kids what they couldn't see themselves and and that was and then and then you know they grow up and a lot of those kids are still in my life my in my life um and i see yeah i saw that in you before you didn't see it yourself you know how smart you were and how attractive you were and um and that's neat actually one of my former students from broad ripple rachel who who is our programs manager here we work together now which i think is the coolest thing in the world i just love that so I just like that age group. I'm fascinated by it. And even when, the, even when I've written books for adults, there's always a teenager in it. And the teenager is always the person who's um, mixing it up, you know, who's kind of pushing people toward coming to terms with something or admitting something or moving, whatever. So I, I, I just like that age group. I think it's really interesting. It's fun. I uh, hold up my prop. In the uh, long novel, The Book of David. Um, it's uh, a, a book for adults. It's about adult protagonists. Uh, and it's five chapters, five installments of this ginormous serial novel. And for the first three of those installments, one character is a baby. But there's a huge jump in time between chapter three and, and, and chapter four uh, for the end of the novel. And then the baby becomes an eight to nine year old boy, depending on, on when we are in the story. And I was so looking forward to getting him. I was hurrying through the first three <laughs> chapters because I'm going to get to a middle grade perspective and then I'll feel comfortable again. I'll be back home. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's where I feel comfortable. That's that's what I you know that's what I like. I I like I like that world. It's always interesting to me. You had a quote I wanted to make sure I asked you about. Uh, let's see. Let me make sure I get it exact since I'm quoting you. Uh, you said I can't not write and stay even a little bit sane in this crazy world. <laughs> How does writing keep you sane? Well, in a couple of different ways. Um, primarily, when I'm writing, I'm not here. You know, I mean, I think anybody who who's written seriously um, knows that feeling of being engaged in what you're doing and looking up and realizing when you look at the clock, the three hours have passed and you weren't here. You know, you were in this this other world. Um, and I I think that's fabulous. I think writers are people and artists generally are people who don't know how to live in the real world. We don't get it. You know, we don't understand how it works and why it works the way it works. And, and so 
I think more than anything, writing is a, is a way of leaving it for a while and being in a world you don't exactly control the world of your, of your book, but it feels more like it than it does in the real world. You know, that, that you're there and you don't have to be anywhere else. I, I, I guess that for me is, is what I love. It's another world. It's a, you know, I don't, um, I, I really find one lifetime to be a, a very, I, I don't like the idea of death. I think it's a design flaw and it makes <laughs> me annoyed. And so I also find that I can live more than one life, you know, if I am writing novels because I'm that person, I'm me, I'm all of those people. And that satisfies me um, in a way. I, I really like that. But mainly I think it is that business of how it takes you away from reality um, in, into a reality that you, you have more control over and, and a reality in which you are always allowed to tell the truth. Um, it's your job to tell the truth. You know, sometimes in real life, telling the truth is, it creates a lot of, a lot of mess. And I generally try to do it whenever I can, but in a book, I, I feel like I have permission to do it, that I'm obligated to do it. And I like that too. So that probably keeps me a little sane too. When I have people that are in my life that are annoying that I know aren't um, very well read and are not likely to read anything I read, that gives me a license. That's going to be the person that dies first. There you go. <laughs> I like that too. Yeah, that's a good way. And that's uh, kind of a safe place where you can look sideways at things and kind of deal with Absolutely. your own issues yeah. and, and then come back to reasons. Where, uh, what's next for Barbara Shoot? What does the future hold? Well, I, I have two young adult novels that are kind of ready to go out into the world. One is uh, called The Thing About Grace. And it's about a girl, a middle-class girl who ends up in a juvenile correctional uh, facility, which is very grim. And it's based on, um, a, a, we did some workshops with girls when the girls' school was here in Indianapolis. We did some writing workshops with them and I was just, so taken by these girls. They were so interesting to me. They were funny and smart and wrecked. And I just, a lot, I just sort of fell in love with them. Um, so anyway, that's what that book is about. It's how she sort of deals with that. Um, and then um, another book that is a, has a main character who's a boy who's gay, but he's not out. And he's got, he lives in suburbia, which he hates and a murder happens. Um, one of his classmates is murdered, murdered, and he sort of gets all caught up in this whole thing against his will, really, and and eventually figures out what really happened. So those are the two YA books, and I just finished a little book about writing too, which I um, sort of surprised myself. I I finished it pretty fast, and it's really um, stories about how I learned things. Like I told you earlier about the you know, the using the fractions to explain, you know, moments where I went, oh yeah. Um, so it's, you know, it's kind of a lot of short pieces. It's got the little thing about Kurt Vonnegut and, you know, what he said to the kids. So it's it's all these little little stories. No, no piece of it is more than three to five pages, I guess. So um, gotta figure out what to do with that too. And, and then I will yeah, soon be available at a store near you. Uh, not soon, no, because <laughs> I have to find a, I, they have to find homes. So I'm I'm going to uh, be working on that over the next months. I I have a, a a three week residency that I'm really looking forward to. I go to this place called Ragdale um, up in Lake 
uh, Lake Forest, Illinois, which is up along the North shore of Chicago. So that's going to give me some time to think and get started on something new and whatever. So that's first three weeks of December. So that'll be good. You find your next story idea for uh, whatever you're, whatever you're going to write about and chasing down. Yeah. Yeah. I've been trying to write a book about, um, the artist Piero della Francesca, who was an early Renaissance artist uh, that I keep starting and stopping and starting and stopping. So I'm going to try to get back into that, I think. I like that world, too. I like historical fiction. That's interesting. Barb, well, thank you so much for making time uh, to share your, your well, thoughts on writing and your career. About writing. <laughs> this has been just wonderful. I could talk with you all day. Um, but I know that uh, you have more things to do for the Indiana Writers Center right there behind you, and I want to keep you busy because I want to keep the Indiana Writers Center we go. uh, going All well. Right. Um, viewers should find out more about you at barbershoop.com as well as the IndianaWritersCenter.com. Uh, nope, IndianaWriters.com. Oh, IndianaWriter.com. Yeah. IndianaWriters.com. And of course, they'll be able to view this in its entirety as well as uh, an interview with you and some other. Uh, articles and interviews with writers at middlegradeninja.com. Uh, Barb, thank you so much oh, again for, for being here. I really enjoyed this. Have